Dear God, we thank you for the opportunities you give us to grow and to be useful and to uh, be part of your solution to the problems in this world. We thank you that you have reached out your hand to us, to us and that you have uh, revealed yourself to us and that we have become convinced that you are not the way your enemies and, and one enemy in particular has tried to depict you. We want to commit our time to you now. We also want to ask your blessing on the students who are leaving this campus now and we ask that you will be with them and that they will feel your presence every step of the way, of the way as they go from here. And be with John as he leads us in our study today. We ask in your name. Amen. Well, thank you very much for the invitation to be with you again. Let me add my congratulations to the students who have finished today. What a high day this is. And uh, I'm quite uh, amazed that uh, there's many of you um, here after the celebrations of, of this morning with the, I believe, uh, Tony Campolo was here speaking. Wonderful. What I'd like to uh, do today is continue, uh, but I'll give a little summary of what we did last week and to share a little bit more thinking together about atonement, about salvation, and um, we've entitled this part two as Four Views of the Gospel. What we'll try to do is work from a broad historical view that we gave last week to a little bit of a uh, closer focus on how... Uh, how ideas of salvation are worked out in actual religious communities. And so uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the one that most of us know well, but those who are not from an Adventist background are uh, invited to look over our shoulders as we do a little bit of, I won't say housekeeping, but you know, a little bit of uh, sorting through the cupboards um, of, our, of our own community. Um, but we're not unique. Um, most religious communities um, uh, go through the same struggle to find what is the logic of salvation that lies behind the metaphors and obviously the faith that we all have in God as our Savior. So that's what we're going to do today and then next week I hopefully will try to uh, bring some of these ideas together in some constructive way, um, turning more to the Bible. We've been looking at history, we're now going to look at a faith community, and then we're going to turn a little more to Scripture and try to see if there's a way of bringing some of the disparity that we will discover close, into closer focus. Um, I, I suggested last time, and I'd like to just remind you, that as we consider salvation, that we keep three key things distinct. Faith doctrine and theology. They're not exactly the same thing. Um, you probably would not be here if you didn't have a personal existential sort of simple sense that God is loving and gracious and that God saves you. Uh, some of you may be curious and interested in what uh, Christians think, and so you may be here without that sense, but most of us would agree that um, we share that personal sense of of belief and of salvation with a wide range of people, uh, way beyond our own community. Doctrine, second uh, area, is how religious communities try to make distinctions between um, issues that they consider to be important. And it's like setting boundaries or uh, building hedges or at least marking the, the perimeter. This is, this is what we believe and this is what others believe. So doctrine functions like that. Um, 
And the interesting thing is that everything that I'm going to be sharing with you today, which is going to be showing some distinctions, are among people who share the same doctrines. So these are not doctrinal differences, but these are going to be the third level difference, which is difference in theology, how the pieces actually fit together. So um, I invite you on this journey together with us, remembering that we probably all agree on the level of faith. We probably share broadly certain doctrinal convictions about salvation that uh, is far wider than the differences we will look at. But exactly how the theology works, how the pieces fit together, is often where um, the plausibility of a particular conviction actually is maintained or breaks down. So we'll look at that a little. Last time, we looked at um, models of salvation in the classic 2,000-year history of the Christian church. We used as our guide a very famous book written by Gustav Aulen, a Scandinavian theologian, called Christus Victor, the Latin phrase for Jesus is Victor. And uh, that was the model that he um, was going to accentuate in his book. But essentially, it's uh, talking about three types of salvation or three models of salvation. And in chronological order, they are the classic or the dramatic model, which uh, Aulen and many scholars uh, after him, following him, have felt was really the dominant idea in the early church. Um, Irenaeus, Origen, uh, Augustine, just to mention a few, um, who essentially understood salvation as God moving against a, um, a, a someone who's hijacked God's God's kingdom and God's people, and uh, overcoming evil and principalities and power and death, and bringing liberation and uh, victory to light. Um, Often called, by those who want to put it down, the, the ransom theory, which I suggested last time, was taking selected passages from early church writers who were trying to explain this to people who had no idea about Christianity, and uh, taking those illustrations and thinking that they were uh, the whole substantive heart of a particular idea. So we must be careful about that. Then he talked about the, um, the view that he called the Latin or objective model, uh, which has its origin with Anselm, and we try to articulate this in 11th century, the so-called satisfaction theory, later developed by Protestants into the penal substitutionary theory, but it essentially has its foundation in Anselm's thinking. And the essence here is that God is both just and loving. And how is God going to, going to de- defend the honor of God's kingdom. That's the original notion of honor. Remember, this is, this is during the period of the feudal system, and uh, honor and, and violence to the honor was, was a really essential thing for the cohesion of government. Later on, by the 16th century in the Reformation, this became more a forensic or a penal notion. How could God be just in the great law court con- context and still be, for, still be able to be gracious to those who were really guilty? And this is often called satisfaction or later, as I mentioned, penal substitutionary model. And then um, the, the, the view that's probably least known by many, um, although maybe this uh, Sabbath school class has heard a little, few more of these ideas than many, um, I've called it the love or subjective model. And um, 
it often traces its origin to, to Peter Abelard, that great uh, Christian thinker in Paris, 12th century. His life overlaps Anselm to a little degree, but um, he is essentially in the next century and uh, sometimes called by its detractors the moral influence theory. It's subjective because the idea of salvation is that God has been misunderstood by human beings. And we do not understand that God is a loving God. And so God demonstrates God's love in Christ, going all the way even to the cross, which is not a requirement for God to forgive us, but is in fact the, the effect of sin. Uh, evil causes innocent to suffer. And that's what happened to Jesus. But in that very act, God revealed the full extent of God's love and God's graciousness. And why it's called subjective is because that's what God does. And then through the power of the Spirit, that demonstration of the love of God has the ability through the power of the Spirit to to quicken and awaken faith and response and love in return in the lives and the minds and the hearts of those who hear it. So here are these three classic models. And so we, 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 we gave a lot of detail on this, and I'm not going to review all of that because we're going to move on to other things. We looked at some biblical texts and tried to articulate it. I did tell you that I would, I would like to give a little bit more time for questions this time. This is obviously to be, supposed to be something of a discussion. And so I would invite you, if you have questions about any of that material, and it's been burning in your minds for, uh, for a week, uh, please ask it now, and then we'll, we'll go on to other things. But uh, let me take a, a chance to see if there's any particular question that anyone would like to ask. Well, either that was very clear last week, or you weren't here, <laughs> or your mind is still with Tony Campola, which is probably a good thing, or, um, or maybe it all went over your heads. But anyway, that's, um, that's good. No questions at this point. And I will invite you just, if you'd like to ask a question, just put up your hand, and it looks as if we have somebody ready to jump right at you with the microphone, if need be. All right. Now, I'd like to um, ask the following question uh, before, we, before we continue. Um, these are, are views of atonement or salvation that um, shape 2,000 years of Christian thinking and uh, believing. And they're still held widely today. Now, most of us, of course, come from an Adventist background, and not everyone. So now here's where those of you who are not can um, sort of look over our shoulders as we sort of talk to ourselves. It's a very illuminating thing to do. Have you ever uh, – I'll tell you one quick little experience. I was a young um, first-year uh, graduate student, a Ph.D. student on uh, the Princeton campus, and uh, – I, I wasn't yet fully familiar with all the ins and outs of how things were done. And I saw that Michael Walzer, who was a person that I was really interested in, wrote Theories of Justice, who was a fellow at the Institute for Advanced Study, and he was going to give a presentation in Murray Dodge House. And I thought, well, that would be something good to go to. I went along Friday evening to the, to the meeting, sat down, looked around, and something in the back of my mind tacitly made me aware that I – this wasn't just a normal meeting. And as it began to develop, I realized I had stumbled into the Jewish student fellowship um, that Friday evening. And uh, Walter, of course, being Jewish, was there. And so I sat for two hours listening to the most incredible in-house, closed-door, almost, yeah, uh, discussion about the Second Commonwealth and about how Israel should move forward. And it was a vigorous, it was a 
it, it is the kind of conversation that sometimes happens in a family, you understand? And, and, and it was just fantastic. I, I tried to shrink down. I realized it didn't look Jewish, but nobody was unkind to me, so I, I survived. So if anyone doesn't have an Adventist background here, uh, let's see. Uh, I think we're a little more placid than that experience. But it was really people, people honored each other by really expressing ideas vigorously and discussing them in depth. I, I felt privileged when I walked out there. So uh, the question is, uh, to be asked is this. What have Adventists done with the understanding of salvation? Right? Three classic models. Well, what's happened in this community, in this particular religious community? Still very young, began in the middle of the 19th century, probably started actually with about 50 people. <laughs> and now is probably, if you count the national census, 20, 25 million people around the world. Yeah, yeah, reasonable growth. Um, still struggling with growing pains. If you want to understand Adventism, we're probably like teenagers, you know. Going through an identity crisis, not quite sure what we are, who we are. Sometimes we act very mature and other times we act like kids. But please bear with us because we're still very, very young. Is that fair? A quick summary? Okay. So, what understanding of salvation do Adventists have? Well, one of the ways we could, we could turn, uh, one of the places we could turn to try to answer that question is a thing called um, Seventh-day Adventists believe certain fundamental beliefs. Now, interestingly, Adventists have a strong tradition against a creed if a creed is to be defined as a fixed formulation of beliefs that have been handed down from um, Jesus himself through uh, the apostles and is there and you simply take it or leave it. We have this idea that the Bible really is the only foundation or constitution for belief, but periodically, out of practical necessity, we try to summarize what we think most Adventists believe, and we change them from time to time. Uh, last, uh, we changed them in 1980, and there's some considerable pressure to change at least one of them uh, coming up in a couple of years. So these things are variable. So they kind of act and are best understood as consensus statements. So that's one place to look. So this is one. And it's called, number 10, The Experience of Salvation. Now, I'll read through it in, in a little bit, but I want you just to see there it sits. And you may think, well, that's, does that say everything that Adventists believe about salvation? Well, and how would this relate to the, the models of salvation that we've looked at in historical context? Well, let's just read it together, just so we have a bit of a feel for it. In infinite love and mercy... God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might be made the righteousness of God. You will notice that although there are texts at the bottom, the, the tendency was to use biblical language wherever possible to state these things, and you will recognize that's pretty much a quote from a Bible verse. Led by the Holy Spirit, we sense our need, acknowledge our sinfulness, repent of our transgressions, and exercise faith in Jesus as Lord and Christ, a substitute and example. This faith, which receives salvation, comes through the divine power of the Word and is the gift of God's grace. Through Christ, we are justified, adopted as God's sons and daughters, and delivered from the lordship of sin. Through the Spirit, we are born again and sanctified, the Spirit renews our minds, writes God's law of love in our hearts, and we are given the power to live a holy life. Abiding in Him, we become partakers of the divine nature, and having the assurance of salvation now 
and in the judgment. So there's the statement. What strikes you? Um, any, any anybody want to make an initial comment? How does that? How does it sound to you? What would you characterize it as? In other communities, I've had interaction with evangelicals, and the last sentence, the assurance of salvation now, is one that they would challenge those who come from the Calvinist view think we don't have. Then we as Adventists don't have an assurance, full assurance, but it's stated. But we claim that we do. Good point. That's right. I've been reading statements like this for many, many years. I don't have a clue what it says. <laughs> you started off by talking about the logic of salvation, and I'm lost. Is it logical? Is it subject to logic analysis? That's a wonderful question. Does anyone, would anyone like to suggest why the statement would lead someone reasonably educated and well-informed and old enough to be wise to say that it's, what does it say? And, and that's not a, um, a reaction that is, um, is unique. What do you think it is that makes one feel a little bit, what is it saying? Well, it just seems to me it's combining at least two of the three uh, theories. You know, I've seen the second of the, uh, the legal system in there, and I've also seen the moral influence, too, where, you know, you know when, when God does his act, then we are drawn to him. And through his power, through the Holy Ghost. So I see that third theory. I'm not seeing as much of the of the cosmic conflict in this statement, but of course it's all through our theology. Thank you, thank you very much. I think I think that's right. If, if you look at this, you'll notice that there was an attempt, legitimate attempt, to include multiple biblical metaphors and images. You know, the Bible has many ways of talking about salvation. So let's start out positively. The Bible is already diverse in the ways it speaks about salvation, so uh, there's something right about including some of that in the statement. The risk, of course, is <laughs> that we become incoherent, or we allow multiple possible ways of teasing it out when you want to get it a little more practical. What exactly should I do to be saved? Which, by the way, is a biblical question, correct? So you know, people ask that. You know, What exactly does it mean to be a Christian? What, what must I actually, in the end, do? And when you start getting to that level of answer, then you need something maybe a little bit more definitive than this. Was there someone else who wanted to make a comment? Yes, back then. I just wanted to say, I don't know if I've ever read this. Um, the sentences are pretty complex, so I think it's hard to understand in that regard. But there's something in it that I'm really happy to see. And that is that it has bothered me over the years that um, there's a lot of emphasis on you have to have faith, as if me having enough faith was what was required. And that just seems kind of frightening to me. But what I see here is that faith comes as a result of God's word and is a gift of grace. And so it takes it off of my effort of being good enough at faith and saying that that is a gift that God gives through grace communicated through his word. I'm really happy to see that in the Adventist statement. Thank you. Thank you very much. Valuable comment. A lot of what goes on is a selection. You know, which passages will you, you know, choose from Scripture? How will you state things? And yes, so much of what we say uh, depends on assumptions, often assumptions we're not fully aware of even, and often that frustrates communication or enables communication. All right. Now, let's, are you ready to work with me a little bit? Let's do something. Would you like to see 
whether we have any overlap at all between the three models that Gustav Allen articulated, uh, you know, the, the Latin or so-called objective model of Anselm, the so-called subjective or um, love model of, of Abelard, or the dramatic classical model, could we, could we identify certain phrases as tending in that direction? So, for the sake of fun, let's try that, all right? So, what I'm going to suggest we do, go back, and uh, I was wondering if the green would show up. Can you see that sort of thing? Why don't we decide that we will call anything that looks like the classic or dramatic model, we'll, we'll put that text in green. Is fair enough? All right, and Latin objective in red, I thought that would fit with the blood atonement model. All right, so... <laughs> And then uh, the love or subjective model um, in blue. All right, shall we, shall we go back and see what happens if we do that? All right, now, ha, green did make it in, but whoever, somebody said it wasn't too much there. Right, notice, in his infinite love and mercy. Well, certainly Abelard would write a lot about that. That, that certainly is the emphasis of that, of that model. God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us. There's that substitution. There's the red model. Um, and, and, you know, we could have analyzed it more carefully. And notice there are parts in white, which may be a clue to next week. <laughs> right? Um, and then there's stuff there that says, um, led by the Holy Spirit, we sense our need, acknowledge our sinfulness, repent, repent of our transgressions, and exercise faith in Jesus. Well, notice that is what happens in our lives. So you can see there's a subjective dimension to that. Then back, Jesus as substitute and example. There's the blue. And if you're looking for the green, I can't even read it on the screen, can you? And delivered, yeah, adopted as sons and delivered from the lordship of sin. There's clearly the notion of triumph over the principalities and powers. And then through the Spirit, we were born again and sanctified. The Spirit renews our minds, writes God's law of love in our hearts, and we are given the power to live a holy life. Do you notice it's interesting that there's quite a bit of blue, and there's not as much red in this one as you might expect. Now, that immediately points to the fact that, of course, this is not the only fundamental belief that addresses salvation. It's scattered all over the place. So number nine talks about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so you'd expect to see some, some red here. God provides the only means of atonement for human sin. That's an Anselmian theme. And that the whole creation may better understand the infinite and holy love of the Creator. Now, I'm not reading the whole statement. Maybe I should, and then you'll just see the color. So let me read it to give a fair treatment here. In Christ's life of perfect obedience to God's will, His suffering, death, and resurrection, God provided the only means of atonement for human sin, so that those who by faith accept this atonement may have eternal life. And that the whole creation may better understand the infinite and holy love of the Creator. This perfect atonement vindicates the righteousness of God's law and the graciousness of His character, for it both condemns our sin and provides for our forgiveness. The death of Christ is substitutionary and expiatory, reconciling and transforming. Boy, you've got all of the models lined up there, don't you? Make sure they're all in there. And then the green, which I can't read there, the resurrection of Jesus proclaims God's triumph over the forces of evil. And for those who accept 
<laughs> for those who accept the atonement assures their final victory over sin and death. It declares the lordship of Jesus Christ before whom every knee in heaven and earth will bow. And you thought that was all. <laughs> what about number eight? <laughs> We're going backwards, the great controversy, and we could read this, and you know this very well. All humanity is now involved in a great controversy between Christ and Satan regarding God's character, and so on and so forth. And that's not all. Even in number four, and number five, and number seven, and number 11, and number 24, and if I was a bit more particular, I would find even more. So it's scattered all over the place, and are we ready to say just tentatively, that what we've got is views that try to get in there almost every biblical metaphor that exists, that tries to make sure that various understandings of salvation are not with, that are popular within Adventism are not short changed. And um, well, let, let me just say, um, remember, I reminded you this is not a creed. This is not something that can't be changed. But actually. The attempt to, to touch most people's understanding and be inclusive rather than exclusive is probably a good idea. Don't you think so? But the problem that was addressed down here is one that arises. Okay, in the end, with all these words, with all the statement, what actually do you believe about salvation? And so there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a tension between wanting to be clear and wanting to be charitable. Does that make sense? Wanting to be inclusive and also wanting to give the trumpet a certain sound, if I may quote a biblical metaphor. All right. So what is the Adventist view of the gospel? Um, as I've traveled around the world, as I've had a chance to grow up in one part of the world and work in another and think in another, I've become uh, quite a, uh, aware of the fact that Adventism as a religious phenomenon, as a community, is very homogeneous around the world. How many of you have traveled widely? I mean, you, could, you can go to Hong Kong. I see right in the back, uh, uh, you know, uh, every time I see my, one of my um, colleagues in, in at La Sierra, whose good wife, is sent uh, all over the world to care about nursing, who, somebody you know very well here, right, who actually carries a bit of a portfolio for the General Conference to help nursing programs around the world. Almost every few weeks is in a different part of the world. And I'm sure if we could get her to, up front to talk, you'd hear that uh, if you walked into a church in Hong Kong, you would probably recognize the tunes even if you didn't recognize the words, right? Would you have any doubt what day the services are on? <coughs> You could probably be pretty high percentage of getting a Wednesday night meeting as well, right? So as a, as a religious community, very much the same policy-wise, the way we live, the way we talk, what we eat, how we think around the world. It's quite remarkable given the global diversity of the community. Fair enough? Yet substantively speaking, it has at least, I think, four rather different forms or kinds of theology vying for recognition as, the, as true Adventism. And the reason for that is the point that was made down here a little bit earlier. 
since there's so many metaphors, since there's so many themes that are being wedded together in these statements, can you see that there are different ways you could put the pieces together to make tighter logical connection? And one of the, one of the challenges facing all of us at the present time is, what are we going to do about that? Because if we don't make it clear... And to make it clear, we need to be more specific. We need to make sure that there's a coherence to it. We will fail to be plausible to people who are increasingly living in a post-Christian environment and world. Does that make sense to you? But the more clear we are, the more the differences between other versions of clarity will arise. Okay? Now, I'm a, I'm, I have to apologize. I'm going to be making a, a bit of a problem today. But remember, next week I will try to solve it all. All right? <laughs> So um, let's take a look at uh, what I, I'd like to suggest to you, that if we take a look at the question, what do you believe the good news to be, we will be able to tease out something really important. Does anyone know what does the word gospel mean? Good news. So here's our, here's our strategy here. Let's ask ourselves, what are the answers to the question, what when it's all boiled down? is the good news that Christians are commissioned to proclaim. All right? So just mentally for a moment, answer that question for yourself. What, what, how would you answer the question? What is the gospel? Right? Now, it's always difficult to create any kind of typology because real people live sometimes in the cracks. A bit of this and a bit of that, right? But nevertheless... Distinguishing these differences hopefully will be plausible enough that you will recognize them. If you've lived in the community long enough, you will probably have heard different people that you can identify linked to, to different models, right? So let's see if this makes sense to you. What is the gospel or good news? Well, I think that a lot of people would answer the good news, the Christian gospel, is all about grace. It's about forgiveness. It's about the fact that we are incapable of measuring up to a holy God and that God is gracious to us and that God forgives us and that we are acceptable to a holy God. Um, Adventists have picked up this Reformation phrase and used it a lot. Righteousness by faith. You've heard of that before? Books have been read, righteousness by faith. Well, what do you mean by righteousness by faith? This first group of folk would answer justification by faith, which means that we are put right with God, no matter whatever the problem, however the problem is conceived, God found a way of ensuring that we are reconciled before a holy God. Whatever the impediments were that caused alienation, if there was alienation, or a problem, in atonement, atonement means that God has found a way to resolve that, and justification means we are being put legally right in the eyes of God. And one of the ways of understanding justification is to emphasize this legal model called forensic justification. Right? We are right with God because God found in Jesus a way of paying the price for sin and then crediting us with the benefits. And so you can see that that is 
the, that is the penal substitutionary model, right? And at least one version of this, and Latin objective. And the focus here is then going to be on Jesus' death. Can you see why? So, one of the ways of answering, what is the good news? The good news is God's grace. Where do you see God's grace? In the cross. Right? And what happens on the cross is God has made it possible for us to once again be acceptable to God. Um, this is not unique to Adventists, dear friends. <laughs> you would find the same logic and the same understanding if you went, for example, to the Reformation texts particularly Luther's way of articulating the gospel. It's interesting because in most other ways, Adventists are far more shaped by Calvinism than by Lutheranism. Did you know that? Because our whole understanding of the law of God uh, is shaped by Calvin's way of thinking. It's more reformed in its understanding. That's not, it's not uh, uh, hard to understand when you know the, the link with the Puritans and the world in which Adventism began. But in its understanding of salvation, this particular version of Adventism uh, is largely shaped with Luther's way of thinking and way of talking about it. Right? Um, Let's go on to all four, and then we can pause again, potentially for some questions, and then we can can see how much further we can go. But is that clear? Anyone want to ask me anything about that, just for clarity's sake? All right, now you will, if you've been around a while, you will know that some people answer it a little differently, don't they? They will not disagree with what we've just said. But if you had to ask the question, what is the good news of the gospel? The answer would be power. God gives us the power to overcome sin. What's the good of just forgiving us for past sins? Isn't God in the business of being powerful enough to get us to stop hurting each other, to stop sinning. Have you heard that? And so that would be the emphasis on power and overcoming. And that phrase, righteousness by faith, good Reformation phrase, would be interpreted not so much justification by his faithfulness. We are justified because Christ was just and obedient in his life. But we can become justified if we have Jesus' faith and we live his kind of life. Does that make sense to you? All right. So here the idea is that we can live righteously by faith. Can you, can you see the difference between the two? The one, the first is an emphasis on justification. And the second tends to be an emphasis on, what's that other word we use? Sanctification. Sanctification. God's work in me and in us. And... The emphasis here sometimes even is to the point of arguing that we can overcome all sin. And the argument would be God's power is not limited. God can help you to overcome sin and to gain the victory over all besetting sins. Um, Sometimes even taken to the point of that word perfectionism or that what Jesus did we can do too because he gave us an example. But clearly if the focus among the first group is on Jesus' death then the focus in the second group is on Jesus' example, his life. He did it, so you can do it too. He came to demonstrate it could be done, now you do it, go out and do it. Interestingly, this is closest 
to Schleiermacher, that father of modern liberal Protestant theology, who also focused on Jesus as forerunner, Jesus as example. And I think many of the folk who hold this view would be quite surprised (laughs) that their understanding of the logic of salvation is in fact closest to Schleiermacher. Um, It is, of course, an example, you could say a moral influence or the love subjective model. God loves us so much that he shows us how to be good, and Jesus demonstrated it. Now it's up to us to walk in Jesus' footsteps. And so that is the inner logic that, or, or package that goes in, 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 in group number two. Well, there's a third. What is the gospel? Grace. What is the gospel? Power to overcome sin. The third answer, what is the gospel? The good news is liberation. Justice. That God is working to correct abuse, to change structures so that God's principles of God's kingdom can be realized in the world today. And we're called to participate with God in this task. Sort of what is the sort of the path of the just? Those of you who have come from La Sierra know then that's sort of an allusion to a particular piece of geography on the campus. But um, that famous text, do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. That's the that's the, the good news. God calls us into partnership with God in what God is doing in the world to conquer sin and make changes. So here the focus is on Jesus' actions. It's another way of focusing on the power of uh, God working in our lives. So the moral influence or love subjective view. And um, it has parallels, not so much now with, with the 19th century view of Schleiermacher with Jesus' example, which we should follow in. Jesus' example of how to be fully God conscious and how to live a moral life, but rather follow Jesus' actions in overcoming evil and in opposing uh, injustice and to become involved then in overcoming the systems and the powers of the day. And then there's a fourth group who would answer, what is the gospel? What is the good news? It's a package of truths. It's beliefs. God has given us a package of information. And that information uh, is um, essential for us to live well and happy and healthy lives. And our purpose is to proclaim those, that package to as, to as many people as we can. Four different answers to the question, what is the good news? Grace, power to overcome, liberation and God's justice, and truth or the church. In some ways, the, this group would sort of answer, maybe a little apologetically, but um, we are the good news. What are the good news? It's us and what we have to offer to you. If that sounds a little arrogant, well, um, sometimes. <clears throat> All right, yes. Thank you. I have a tendency myself to even think of good news as a little more broadly in that the prayer before class that was mentioned that God is not the God that his enemies make him out to be. And to me, that is good news. If I had everything for salvation to be provided, but yet God was the God that his enemies make him out to be, 
So it would be a rather miserable eternity, uh, even though I had salvation, if I had to have eternity with a God that the enemies <coughs> make him out to be. So to me, the good news is the good news about what God is like. No, incidentally, uh, because of that, I have opportunity for salvation. Did you notice what he's noticed that in, well, first of all, do you think that I'm, I'm at least roughly accurate in saying that these are four dominant ways that people would answer the question, right? And yet what you're pointing out is something is missing there. Because do you notice what tends to be the nature of the answer? It's about us <laughs> in one another form, you know. And you're saying, well, maybe it's about God. <laughs> Stay tuned for next week because I, I'm going to pick up on that a bit more. And suggest that that's probably onto something. Just looking at your titles or headings on the liberation justice, I guess the thing that came to my mind was the Psalms, um, make things right, help me overcome the enemies, fix the problems that are existing. So I thought you were going to lead that into the classic model of the uh, rescuing us from the problems. It's certainly, um, it's certainly uh, a model that would fit very well. It's interesting that it hasn't been particularly connected really, um, as much as it could have been. So I'm just sort of following here the fact that it tends to still focus on God fixing a problems here because there's some uneasiness with this cosmic conflict theme. Okay. So we'll, but we'll come back to that. Actually. Very good observation. Very good. Oh, I see a question here, and way at the back. I was going to say, one of the things that bothers me about the power and giving me the power, it's back on me, and it's only as good as I use the power. Even if the power is excellent, it's back on me to have to use that power. And there's a lot of pressure in that, isn't there? Thank you. So we're noticing a theme that's it's a lot about us, right? The first one, even, you know, it's God's grace, it's wonderful forgiveness, but wow, I'm reconciled, individually, you know, I'm made right with God. I've accepted it. The third one, we can get things right with God's help. And second, individually, we can overcome sin. And finally, we've got something God has given us. Now we need to share it. But it's about us and our programs and our understanding. All right. So we can understand each of these four as coming into existence independent of each other, or are they reactions to, to certain other views that come about later? I think that's a very good question. I think that uh, all of these uh, pictures, and I'll show you the next slide, which I think will make it clear that at least two of them are almost... You know, so I think of Hegel's master-slave analysis. You know, you can't, have, you can't have a slave without a master, and you can't have a master without a slave because these concepts belong together. They mutually shape each other. And uh, I think that's a very good observation, that a lot of this comes out in more... In, 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 well, it can't be that, therefore it must be this. Good, good point. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm just trying to find a, a biblical sort of correlate here, because I, I, you're doing systematic theology, and, and some of us <coughs> get scared when you do that. <laughs> so, 
the grace model would probably, you know, be anchored in Paul, you know, and maybe be qualified somewhat today by by new perspectives on Paul that are somewhat less legal and more emphasizing revelation. The the liberation model could be the Gospel of Matthew, you know, that is justice. Or Luke Acts. Or Luke Acts, too. Now, the cosmic conflict perspective isn't prominent in these four models. And and maybe, I don't know where, where one would put it, but maybe one would put it in the fourth one, truth. But truth not as doctrinal statement, not as a doctrine, but as a revelation. So the, the truth that would be, you know, would be a revelatory emphasis, and it would not be about us. You know, we would not be the good news then. I, I just wanted want to show you that last week we did read a few biblical passages, and we'll do it again next week. So apologies for a bit of systematic theology here. It's not, yeah, not even that. Just some doctrinal reflections, right? And then you're quite right. I, for example, there um, is, is one place even in broadly Pauline um, theme, and certainly the book of Revelation. You find it strongly. But it's interesting that you say it's not particularly there. Oh, there. <laughs> All right. Yes. If we said to define, instead of the gospel, love, we could come up with 4, 16, 256 definitions, none of which would be right, because it's far more integrated and complex than any definition. Why would you define and analyze you taking a segment, a dimension? You're missing certain things. You're missing a whole bunch of things. Simply the language to define is bound to fail because the gospel is bigger than human language. I mean, if we go to what is the gospel, Christ said to his disciples, tell them the kingdom has come. Now, I'm torn between the tension between your two statements, your two questions. Did you all catch that? The first one, this is confusing. What does this mean? Is there any logic to any of this at all? And, um, and this one that says, any attempt to define too strictly and we're going to lose something really important, right? Now, I want you all to think about that well-stated dilemma as homework for next week, right? Because I think that puts your finger on exactly what we want. Is there a way that really becomes, once you see it, becomes, yes, that is what Scripture is doing, that will not reduce our views to just pale sort of analytic slices. I'm almost tempted at Loma Linda to say sort of like, pathology slides. That's exactly, you know, you just take one line through, which are kind of helpful. I... I value that when I, I need to know, you know what's there. But you, know, you may have missed something important. The slice you took may have been just too low or too high to catch that malignancy that was really there. So I think that that, that is, a, is a key issue. Now, I want to just for a moment be a little more sober with you for a moment. And this is where I said that those of you not in the Adventist community just sort of look over our shoulders and try to treat us with a little bit of charity and, some, and, and, and sympathy. Would I be overstating it if I had to say this? That currently we're going through a period of a little tension between some of these different views. Would that be fair to say? Have you felt a little bit of the, 
the jostling a little bit. But hasn't that always been the case? I mean, gymnastics. Yes, yes. Um, and yet there have been periods of time when, um, when, the, when the diversity has been more productive rather than centripetal. <laughs> oh, no, centrifugal. What we, yeah, we'd get that physics right, you know, spreading us apart. So I want to just share one more slide with you. And I, I, I could go into a whole lot of detail, but I think it may be helpful just to see this. These basic answers to what is the gospel can become elaborated into whole, whole theologies. <laughs> and I want to just share with you that I think, and now I want to just put an analytical, historical sort of cap on my head. I want to just tell you what I think has happened in Adventism today without a value judgment and just share that with you so that we can be primed for next week when we come here to ask, is there a way that we will not lose the diversity and the richness and all of the uh, multiple facetedness of what is indeed an incredible existential experience of being saved by God's grace and nevertheless find a way to have sufficient clarity and sufficient coherence that we will be able to be more effective in a post-Christian environment in saying this is what Christians believe and here's the good news. So that's the tension. All right. So here's what I think has tended to happen. That we have gradually developed four distinct logics or types or models of Adventism. And the, the primary uh, labels I've tried to find labels that the people themselves who would ascribe to these views would be happy with, you know, charitable labeling. So tell me if you think I'm, I'm right. So I would argue that we have the four called some groups calling themselves historic Adventists. Now, we could debate whether they really are historically the only version, but historic Adventists. Have you met any? Have you, you heard, you've heard that label around? All right. Then evangelical Adventists. That term is a little bit problematic because some... Uh, back in the 80s, used that term for a bit of a further to, to one end of the spectrum, but I'm using it broadly, evangelical Adventists. And then you've heard the term progressive Adventists, and I think they're happy with that. And then the, the, the fourth group is by far the largest numerically, but is the most hard to find the right label for. I've tried evangelistic or missionary, um, but I think the word just mission Adventists. Because it's largely the Adventism that is the product of mission, of Adventist mission. It's often dominant in the two-thirds world, but not exclusively so. And it has as its fundamental understanding that it exists for the purpose of mission. It's a very rapidly growing and very um, strongly expanding vision of Adventism. Um, the second little subtitle is an attempt to not be derogatory, but to simply use more technical terms that a sociologist of religion would use to describe the kind of uh, views or the kind of ideas that would thrive in this particular version. And historic Adventists are largely 
sectarian conservative view. Sectarian used here as we have got something that makes us different. It's the emphasis on differences rather than on commonalities, right? And differences to the point of actually being different as a community and valuing the fact that you are distinctively different. Evangelical Adventism tends to focus itself on and, and absorb and be very open to general evangelical Protestant views. Protestantism today in America is largely divided into two groups, evangelical and ecumenical. Those are labels, but they sort of describe the, the more conservative and the more mainline groups. And so evangelical Adventists, evangelical Protestant views, strongly focused on grace-oriented attitudes Progressive Adventists, ecumenical mainline views, more open, sometimes you could use the term liberal views, um, not as a technical description of a 19th century view of theology, but more of just open and willing to adapt to new ideas. And then Mission Adventism, largely institutional and orthodox in the sense of of, um, a fixed package of unchanging beliefs that are to be communicated and a more traditional and hierarchical attitude where the, 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 it's the church itself, it's the institution that needs to be preserved and needs to be strengthened and grown throughout the world. So if you had to choose one word that would describe the central focus of each of these groups, I would suggest that historic Adventism cares about the law because the law is seen as the transcript of God's character, as the essentially the authority of God. And if I may... Can I just do a, a, a one-second little, uh, little mini-drama for you, right? This view says, in the beginning, God's law was there, all was peace and happiness. God's law was challenged, God had a problem, and war in heaven, and the rebellion against God infected this earth. Human beings adopted the rebellious attitude. God tried to send many messages to people to try to help them to get to come back into obedience. They didn't. Eventually, God sent his son who demonstrated that the law of God could be kept. You, you're with me so far? I'm going very quickly. And Jesus did it just like us. He had a human nature like everybody else. He had propensities to evil, but he never sinned. And so what he did, we can do. The church has been commissioned to do what Jesus did, but repeatedly failed. But eventually, um, one group of church, you, you know who it is, is going to do it. And then finally, in the final judgment, when all things are opened up, in the end, the law of God is going to be vindicated and God's authority will be declared and all will be done. That's why I put the little Ten Commandments and the law of God up there. It's the central focus. Are you with me? Do you understand? All right, let's go now to number two. Same starting point. Law of God. Challenged. God's authority. Is God right in demanding obedience to something so difficult as these transcript of God's character? Lucifer says, God is unjust. Adam and Eve tend to agree. God says, no, no, no. I'll give you mercy. And again, he forgives them. And again, and again, and again, they don't get the point. And eventually Jesus comes, not now to show us how to do it, but to do it so that it could be given to us as a gift. Remember? Right? And now God wanted the church to go out and shed this good news to the whole world that this could be done and that all could find peace just accepting God's grace. But the Christian church has sort of failed, failed, failed. But there's a group who may do it still. You know who they are, right? And spread the light across the whole world. And then in the final judgment, 
when the books are opened and the accusation is, how can you let these rebels into heaven? God says, not the law. God says, my grace has triumphed. I've made a provision. And these people have accepted by faith. Therefore, they have a right to be in. You get the picture? Wow, that clock. That clock is late, isn't it? This one. (laughs) Progressive Adventism. Not so much the law of God, but the point is that God is in the business of creation. God builds goodness. God creates structure. God creates wonderful life-giving harmony. And something has gone radically wrong. And God is working to bring about fundamental change in the way we live. God called prophets here and kings there and failure upon failure. But nevertheless, God has persisted in calling for a reconstruction, for a progressive opening, right? For present truth to continually be flooding into our lives so that we would see what kind of God we have. And we would realize that God is the one who will ultimately bring the kingdom of God. Who said that the kingdom of God is coming. And we are to be partners with God in working towards that kingdom, practicing the principles of the kingdom until eventually Through God's action, God's kingdom will come. Sin and sinners will be done away with, and God's kingdom will reign triumphant. That clock is definitely wrong. Uh, (laughs) Mission Adventism. From the very beginning, there were two sides. You were either on the side of the third of the angels or the side of the two-thirds of the angels, right? You were either with Adam or Eve, and then you were with Seth and Cain. God has had his people. That train is going to the kingdom, and there's always been the others. Choose ye this day whom you will serve, right? Get on board. And this, this train is going along, and today is your test. Jesus was on the right side, and all of the others chose badly. Choose rightly. Get into God's people for today. God's church is going to triumph, and all the rest is Babylon and the beast and terrible. Get out. Come away from them. Get, in the, get on board. The kingdom is coming. God triumphs when the church grows more baptisms how many baptisms have you got recently right (laughs) this is this is the spirit they will take an Adventist university and say, in the mornings, you go out and give Bible studies. And in the afternoon, you can read books. And in the evening, you can prepare your Bible studies for the next morning. Right? Because that's what's really important. Okay. I will now end. There is strength and maybe some weaknesses in each of these models. Next week, I will try to show just a little bit of both sides. Ask, is it possible for us? As a little microcosm of the broader Christian world, you understand. This is not a unique Adventist problem. You understand. General Christianity is tearing itself to pieces as well, right? If you're watching what's going on outside. So is it possible for this little microcosm not to lose the richness of the diversity, to acknowledge the biblical the biblical richness of metaphors and still find a way in which we can hold each other's hands, put our shoulders together and move in roughly the same direction, right? That's the challenge. And I hope that we will see as many of you as possible next week. And I've long since needed to be quiet. So thank you very much.